Okay, so we were we left off when we were talking about sin in the realm of thought. Sin in the realm of thought. Remember that? Yes. Okay. Okay. So we're going to see where the footnote four is. It's on the left-hand column, near the top. The first word on the line is sin, and there's a little four. See, this would be convenient if this had line numbers on it, right? But life is not convenient. Okay. Everyone has the place? Okay. What? No? If you have the place and the person next to you does not have the place, assist the person next to you. All right? Find the place yourself before assisting others. I was on the plane, and they tell you by the on the plane that if these air masks pop down, please remove your regular mask before putting on the air mask. Oh, wow. It's an important thing to know. I would not have done that. You wouldn't? I wouldn't have thought it through. I don't know. Why did I feel the oxygen? The ball, the, the bag is inflating for the oxygen. Okay. Everyone has your. Some of us survived just by a chance. Fine. You know the most common thing to take on airplanes now? Lollipops. Why? Because you don't want to wear a mask. You're eating the whole time. <laughs> Okay. Um, fine. Or even when he does not contemplate committing a sin, right? But indulges in contemplation of carnal union between male and female general, where he's guilty of violating the ad. I cannot say this word properly. Someone help me out here. Admonition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah there we go. Okay. Admonition of the Torah. Keep thee from every wicked thing. Okay. Meaning that one must not harbor impure fantasies by day. So there's two kinds of sin in thought. One is the act of contemplating doing the sin. The entertaining the fact of, hmm, I would like to go eat this cheeseburger. Well, you're actually entertaining the thought of doing something. That itself is a sinful thought. But what if you are not entertaining the thought of doing it? So then there's another thing where certain... Certain things you're not allowed to think about even though you're not considering doing them. And even though in principle they, they, um, they may not be forbidden. So um, as it puts here, we'll keep this in a pure language. Carnal relations are not inherently inappropriate, right? People are allowed to get married. However, indulging in fantasies, not in the relation to actually being married in that context um, where it's relevant to the relationship, that itself is a sin. It's a biblical verse. Um, and so just like you are not allowed to speak slanderous thought, speak slanderous things about people, one is also not allowed to engage in certain kind of daydreaming and fantasizing. Um, so, and so we have here right, the contemplation of sin per se, which is forbidden, and also just the indulgence in inappropriate fantasies, which is also forbidden. And this only applies if you're a man, or when it is a fitting time to study the Torah, but he turns his heart to vain things. As we've learned in the Mishnah in Avos, he that wakes in the night or walks alone by the way and turns his heart to vanity is guilty against his own soul. So if you are a man who's obligated to study Torah at all times and you let your mind wander to, I don't know, thinking about the news when you could have been thinking about Torah, you are sinning. 
much easier to be a woman sometimes. Yes. My wife says, <laughs> I, I don't, my wife says, I don't have to, I don't have to get up for a Pierce on time. <laughs> so, yeah, there are differences. So, so again, we have three elements of sin and thought. One is the contemplation of doing something forbidden. The second is indulging in fantasies, which the content is not sanctioned by the Torah. And the third, which applied to men, is when a person's mind is not on Torah when it otherwise could legitimately be so. All right? So, um, not sinning in thought is quite hard. Now, while we're on the topic, even though it's something it says in chapter 12, what about thoughts of hatred or anger? or jealousy, are they forbidden? I think if they, when they pop up, not as the pop up. Right, right, the popping up is never forbidden, right? But oh. it's like this. So it is clearly forbidden for me to think about how to steal your car. That is forbidden. It is even forbidden for me to think about how to convince you to sell your car when you don't want to sell it, and I know you don't want to sell it. Did you know that's forbidden? You're not a scheme in your mind. The scheme in your mind about how to get someone to, do, to part with their possessions that they don't want to sell. Even if you're going to use legal means, that's also forbidden. Okay? Um, what about just thoughts of jealousy per se? Or thoughts of, of anger per se? Or thoughts of hatred per se? And not the contemplation of acting on them. Is that forbidden? I think if you're, you know, like you're, Indulging it, you're, yes. So the Alter Rebbe says in chapter 12, he says, um, you don't have chapter 12, but just because it's relevant here. He says... Isn't that in the fantasy realm? Like your friends are it? Right. Just thinking about it. Right. So he says, so too in matters affecting a person's relationship with his neighbor, as soon as the rises in his heart and his mind some animosity, hatred, or jealousy, or anger, or a grudge, right? Those are the same, and he goes on, and, he, and he goes on to equip that is that is following from the forbidden thoughts in the terms of carnal thoughts or thoughts of heresy. So, indulging in thoughts that cast doubt on the legitimacy of Judaism, carnal fantasies, and also thoughts of anger, hatred, spite, jealousy, vengeance. Even if you're not contemplating acting on them, you're just indulging them in a kind of a daydreaming, fantasizing way. That is also forbidden. Now, I do need to make an important caveat to this, which is, as we discussed previously, it is important to actually um, change not just our thoughts, speech, and action, but our feelings, right? And we can't access our feelings without thinking about them, right? Um, and often we need to speak about them, right? So there is a difference between thinking about feelings of anger or hatred or jealousy in the context of trying to address the feelings versus, the, versus them being a kind of a, 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 a rehashing and a fantasizing of them. Um, I think anybody that, that engages in any honest self-reflection realizes there's a very big difference when I'm reflectively examining my feelings in order to process them versus those feelings driving an indulgent fantasy. Those are different, right? Similarly with speech. There's a prohibition against speaking ill of people, right? That being said, there are contexts in which you are allowed to say ill things about people in order to process um, and heal from harm, okay? 
Right? Now, this is not the subject of the class, so I am not want to get into that. A, because it's not the subject, and B, it's not my field of expertise. Um, but I do think it's just important to know is that when we're saying sins in the realm of thought, the similar realms of thought have this, again, contemplating doing something wrong, indulging in a kind of, in a kind of daydream or fantasizing of which the content is not sanctioned by the Torah, such as carnal issues, the um, heretical things, and also um, hatred, jealousy, vengeance, grudges, things like that. And then, of course, you have the issue of neglecting the mitzvah of Torah study when a person could be doing so if you're obligated to study Torah. Are women obligated to study Torah under the heading of the mitzvah of Torah study? Yeah. No. Are women obligated to study Torah? Yes. Yes, but under other <laughs> obligations, okay. such as the obligation to love God, fear God, know how to serve God, etc., etc., etc. Okay. But one of the consequences of the difference, legal difference, is that doesn't create an ongoing permanent obligation to be involved in Torah study at all possible times. Yeah. I'm wondering, like, it feels like if I were a man and I had to literally constantly be monitoring my thought, obviously you want to be monitoring your thought, but I feel like that could be very anxiety-making. Correct, To like could constantly be. be like, oh my gosh, I just thought about it, what is on the news yesterday. You know, like, I'm not, I'm wondering about the, the practical, what that practically is like, because that feels like there are, broadly speaking, there are three, three ways this gets approached. One is that people, um, in a certain sense, just give up and feel guilty. Mm. That probably be the most common thing mm. is that like, you do the best you can and you're not perfect and you're not going to leave, you don't like, you just, and that creates a kind of a level of, of guilt and a small, a small thing of, of um, hypocrisy, mm. right? Um, and then you have the opposite, which is where people actually really try to do that, and then either that usually comes as a result of either an anxiety about it or a, a delusion that they're doing it when they're not. Mm. And you get you know, that kind of like, you know, th- those are both very negative. The, the actual way this is understood from the perspective of Hasidus is that the monitoring of thought per se is ineffectual. Not that, it, 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 not that you should never do that, but that cannot be the way to do it. Uh, just using a physical analogy, when you're driving on, on the highway where there's like a mountain or there's turns or something like that, they have these, these um, barriers on the side of the road, right? So you don't fall off a cliff or crash into a tree or something, right? Now, in, um, you shouldn't be using those to stay on the road, right? It's not like you should drive and like, well... I didn't go off the cliff because I hit the barrier and then I hit this barrier, right? Like in the video games, driving video games, you like hit the sides and like, that's fine in the video game. In real life, like, like, it's good that they're there. That should not be your go-to plan for how not to fall off the cliff or hit the tree, right? You should be, right? In other words, you should be steering the car in such a way that you don't get to that place. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is, and this is going to be where we see this when we get to the idea of the main, is that really the, 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 the the, the idea of the Bainani who's going to be sin-free, even in sins of thought, is going to be rooted in their attitude towards sin rather than controlling themselves moment by moment. So when a person has a sense of relationship with God and the importance of mitzvahs and the, and the, and the harm of sin, that becomes their, the way they are approaching life, which, again, this is not the topic of this, just chapters 12 and 13 deal with this, and, and really the rest of time is then built off of that, then, well, it may be true in a particular instance here or there, I might need to do some self-monitoring. Um, it, it, it's not a constant act of self-monitoring. Okay? And so, and you can see this, that when a person is, is quite passionate about something, right, it's not that they don't need to engage in self-discipline. 
but that self-discipline is, is, on, is on very specific things. For instance, getting started, right? Or when a major distraction comes up, right? So if you think, just an example, like if you are studying a subject that either you A, find very interesting or B, is very important that you pass the test, important to you, not to your parents, right? Um, the amount of self-discipline moment by moment in the studying is quite minimal. It's the getting started, it's the getting back after a break, right? And now you don't have these anxiety issues and things like that. Um, and this follows the general view of Hasidus, that the general approach of Hasidus is that when you are engaged with the positive, you don't have to struggle so much with the negative. Okay. Thank you. Um, and, 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 and in Hasidic tradition, um, it is always, they've always looked down about people whose, whose religiosity is characterized by an anxiety of sinful thought. Not that sinful thought is okay, mm. but like that is not the mode in which a person, that, that's, a, that's an indication the person is devoid of a sense of God in their life. Mm. Because that, ang- a sense of God in your life, there's the, as, as the verse says, there's power and joy in the place of God. That a person who's living with a sense of being connected to God is not ridden by anxiety. Mm. And so you, if, if that's, that's an indication of something is off, and they hit, you know, in old Chabad tradition, there's very nasty words for such people. Which I'll not repeat in public. So, but many people just fall to you know the path of least resistance, which is uh, since nobody other than myself knows my thought, as long as I am not so guilt-ridden by my thought, you build up a certain like level of tolerance, and that's the indication that the person is is their animal soul is really still in control of them. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, good. All right. Thank you. Wait, just a question. Does anyone ever get to a point when no sinful thought comes into their mind? This automatic thought is a thing that exists, and even if you just saw an ad or something, it's it's not you're not creating the thought. Again, is it the indulgence of thought we're talking about? Or so initial- that's what we're talking about here. Um, but yes, a person can get to a point in theory where this sinful thought does not even occur to them. But we'll look at that later in time. We'll get to that later. Like that's over now. Good? Okay. All right. For by reason of any one of these things, and they're like, he is called wicked at such a time that the evil in his nephesh and his soul prevails over him, clothing itself in the body, inducing it to sin and defiling it. Okay, so at the moment of sin, what is happening is that the animal soul has taken control and thrust the person into Sin, right? Now, I, I, at this point, I want to talk a little bit about what sin is. We've been speaking about, about um, things that are constitute sins or what's going on in the souls that make a person sin, but what actually is sin? Right, so I will give you an analogy. Um, in a hospital, a person is in the hospital, um, I had a relative who was in the hospital in the ICU, which is um, setting all emotions aside. is quite a fascinating place, the ICU. <laughs> Why? Well, the ICU is a person who, the ICU is a place for a person who, if the hospital was not currently treating them at this very moment, they would be dead. They are in the, their body is in the process of dying, but they are not dying because, right, that's when they say the person is stable. What does it mean that the person is stable? It means given the medical intervention we're doing right now, they're not dying. If we were to stop the medical intervention, they would be dying, right? If 
that's no longer the case, right? If the person's not on the way to dying and they need the medical they move them out of the ICU and they move them to whatever unit they're in to get treatment and healing, whatever, right? Okay. So it's quite an interesting place to be. Um, and um, so one of the things that's in the ICU is they have, everybody in the ICU is hooked up to all sorts of things. Now some of those things are just monitoring, right? Monitoring blood pressure, monitoring oxygen <coughs> levels, but a lot of those things are tubes that put stuff into the body. So you have tubes that are going into the veins and tubes that are going into the lungs sometimes and depending on what the issue is, right? And um, people in the ICU often need a lot of different things. So you actually have, so everyone's seen like an IV, right? Where you've got a, um, you know, you've got like a little IV bag and the person's got a little thing. But in the ICU, because there's so many different things going on, so what they have is, at least, I mean, I've never been in every ICU, but in this ICU, the way it works was, so the person has um, a, what do you call it? Uh, IV in their, in their, wherever it is, yeah? And then that's hooked up to a machine. That machine that has like, I think it was like something like 12 different slots where different things can be hooked up into and then with the machine then puts all those together and puts that in, right? So like when the person needs more painkillers, they just take a bag of morphine and they hook that up to the machine or if they need some antibiotics, hook that up to the machine. So you've got all of these different tubes going into this one thing and it goes into the person. Okay. Now, it's obviously very important that the nurse who's changing out these bags, right, into this machine puts the right bag in, right? Because God forbid <laughs> he put the wrong medication in, right? Especially if this is... Okay. Soda. What? Or soda. Or soda? <laughs> soda. Having carbonation in your bloodstream is probably not a good idea. Right. That, that, that sounds very dangerous, actually. Now that, you, now that you mention that, right, yeah. Now, I don't know why you would have an IV bag filled with soda, but okay. This kind of thing happens in Brazil regularly. For they put soda, soda? They will consistently put something like washing soap into the wrong bag. Or like literally... Okay, so this is exactly my point. Okay, so now this like, is... People get fired and animals and people die. So right, okay, so this is exactly what I want you to understand, okay? So what I want you to understand is that sinful... It's like this. Everything that you do everything you say and everything you think, instead of it being, instead of you thinking of it as something that you're doing, what I want you to, what I want you to think about it is it is a, um, a connection has been formed between the soul of the person and an IV bag. So you have like a body and an IV bag, right? But there's like a whole machine of different IV bags coming in, and, right? Okay. When a person does a sinful thing, what happens? The channel between the IV bag that is filled with dishwashing soap and soda goes into you. And when you do a holy act or holy speech or holy thoughts, then what happens? Saline. Saline or nutrients or maybe some antibiotics if you need them or whatever it is, yeah? So what is happening when the animal soul gets a person to sin is like the nurse who hooks up a bag of dish soap to the ICU patient, okay? So at the moment of sin, right, what is the animal soul doing when it's prevailing over them and inducing it to sin, defiling it? It is, it is, it is getting the soul to be a receptacle for something which is spiritually toxic, okay? In other words, instead of just thinking of it got the soul to, to do something wrong, the act of doing something wrong causes the soul to have 
an injection, an infusion of something which is very, very unholy. Our godly soul? Your godly soul. Hence, the godly soul becomes contaminated and defiled by that. It becomes poisoned. Not just garments. Ah, so while the sin is a garment, right? But no, the action is the garment. The action is the garment, the right. The, right, the, right, but, but, right. So the action is a garment, right? The act or the words or the thought, right? But what makes it sinful is that it actually serves as, an, as a means to infuse, to inject within the soul the... The forces of Klippa, the forces of impurity, and to the person, and, and, and that has ramifications. Now, it's not pertinent to our purpose right now. The long-term ramifications of that—that's that's discussed other places in Tanya. Okay, obviously, being injected with dish soap into your veins is going to be different than being injected with soda in your veins. Neither is good, right? But there's probably differences, and okay, and different sins will have different long-term effects. But that means at that moment, what is happening is that the person is being infused with something that is ungodly. So not just his body. What? Like his body is not, it's not just his body. Well, it, 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 if, well since the soul enlivens the body, then also the, body, right? the body becomes infused with it as well. And so at that point, the person becomes an incarnation of evil. At the moment of sin, the thing that is infusing into them is the forces of unholiness. So much so that later on in Tanya, the altar will say, at the moment of sin, there really is no difference in one sin and another. All the differences, there's no difference in one sin and another. The only differences between one sin and another are the ramifications after the sin. Once you pull the eye, in other words, you're poisoning the person. Now, the consequences of that poisoning might be different, but you're doing an act of, you're doing an act of, 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 uh, let's say medical malpractice at best, (laughs) right? And so what's happening is that that moment that the, that the animal soul is, is prevailing over the person, getting them to sin, the entirety of the person has become in that moment suffused with the forces of evil. Hmm. Now, that's at the moment of sin, right? Okay, now, one second. I want to just finish the train of thought. That means at the moment of sin, at the moment of sin, does the godly soul find any expression? No. At the moment of sin, the godly soul will go completely dormant. Okay. What we're, then we're going to now though, so is that what happens after the moment of sin, and we're not going to talk about the effect of the sin per se, we just want to talk about the relationship of the souls. But at the moment of sin, what has happened is that the animal soul prevailing over the godly soul means that it is now taken over completely suffuse the person with all of the evil inherent in the forces of the Zedrach or the Klippas and that manifests itself in the act of the act, the sinful act um, and at that moment the, 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 the godly soul has, has completely withdrawn into itself and finds no expression in the person's life okay? but because the domination as we said before of the godly soul is not absolute, right? The godly soul is not completely eradicated from the person, right? So there's going to be a reemergence of the godly soul, and that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to, how that rebalancing occurs, and yet the person is still considered to be a Russia, even after the sin. Okay. Yes? So the one part that I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around is how the soul itself becomes soil. Like, I understand that it withdraws, 
Why can't it become soiled? What was the problem? I just feel like it, the, it, it's pure. It's the coffee. It's, it's part of God. It's godly soul. It's pure. I mean, we're all, everything's part of God. But I don't know. I just can't see how it would. Does anyone? No, I'm sorry. Yeah. What? Okay. That's true. Okay. So, I will answer you briefly, because it's not the topic. There are different levels of the soul. Okay? We are talking about the soul as the soul. So there's a level of the soul, which is called sometimes the foot of the soul. And the foot of the soul is the part of the soul which is, which is within the body of the person. There's what's called the head of the soul. That's the part that's unified with God. Okay. Which part gets contaminated by sin? Which part gets defiled by sin? Foot. Which part can never be contaminated, never be defiled? When the soul is cut off from God, which can happen as a result of certain sins, which part of the soul is cut off from God? So is it cut off from God or is it cut off from the head? So really, it's not that the soul is cut off from God. It's the part of the soul that's suffused within the person is cut off from the part of the soul that is one with God. And so this is, what creates the ambiguity is you're using the same word in different contexts to mean slightly different things. So sometimes we mean the soul as a whole. Sometimes we're referring to a specific aspect of the soul. And sometimes referring to a different aspect of the soul. And this is just a common feature of language that words have that kind of thing, right? Um, yeah. So, well, we refer to his garments are much more important than that, because they literally influence. Yes, yes, yes. It's not just like garments that you take on and off. Well, so, so this is the thing: is that like they're they're, they're not called garments in Hasidus because of their lack of importance. They're called garments because of the ability to change them without changing yourself. That is the primary reason why they're called garments. I can, no matter how, what state of my soul is, I can nonetheless choose to do a sin and I can choose to not do the sin. And not, which, which is not true about saying trust in God. I can't just choose to trust God. That's something I have to develop and work on. I can't just choose to love God. I can't just choose to despise evil. Those are things I have to work on. So it's in that sense. There's nowhere in Hasidus ever where it says that the garments are, that the garments are called garments because of their lack of value relative to the soul. In fact, in chapter four, where the idea of garments is first introduced, it speaks about the garments actually being superior to the soul. Um, and it's implicit um, in chapter six and seven of Tanya um, that, the, that evil garments have the same kind of thing, that they're also more powerful and drag soul down. So in, in, in terms of, in, 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 in terms of the, 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 the power Garments are much more powerful, which then leads us to an interesting observation. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the, the Rebbe's um, ideology of emphasizing action above all. So sometimes people misinterpret that to mean that's an emphasis on the action as opposed to the person. Like who you are doesn't matter. What matters is that you just do the right thing. But given what we've learned, is that what the Rebbe really say? Or they're saying the most powerful thing you can do, not just for the world, but also for yourself is... The act. Now, it, th- there's a, certainly a deficiency there, which is that it doesn't actually transform you and change you in this internal ways we spoke about, right? It, it, but but in terms of in terms of um, 
in terms of its reach and its power, um, yeah, the garments are the garments are, are superior. In fact, so some place in Hasidus that it actually makes the following observation that the soul, because the soul really fuses with the body, the soul has to be limited to what the body can handle. But the holiness or unholiness of actions is not really suffused within the action and therefore there's no limit. So a small little act can be infinitely holy or infinitely unholy. And so, yes, the, 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 the effect of the action, positively or negatively, can be much more powerful. Again, it, an action devoid of like that working on engagement is not gonna have a transformative effect like we said yesterday, but it'll have a more powerful effect. So at the moment of sin, the, what the, the animal, something very, very significant is happening is that the animal soul is injecting and infusing the person with a, with a, uh, a, 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 a dose of, of spiritual evil that completely overcomes the person at that moment. So much so that at the moment of sin, as Dr. goes on to say later on in time, at the moment of sin, regardless of the sin, there's no expression of the godly soul and the person is completely separate from God. Now, so obviously, if that kind of thing can happen to the godly soul, even when it's not happening, that's not a good state to be in, right? Make sense? Okay. So now what we're going to do is we're going to move over to when the godly soul reemerges, right? Reasserts itself, but still the person is classified as a Russia because there's still a domination of the godly soul by the animal soul. Presently, however, the good that is in this divine soul asserts itself. And he is filled with remorse, right? right? What happens right after the sin? Right? The person, again, we're talking about a person who once in a while sins. And only, once, and only in sins that are quote, minor sins. And maybe only in one particular garment, right? Maybe only in speech, maybe only in thought, right? And what happens right after they sin? They're filled with remorse. Where is that remorse coming from? The godly soul. The godly soul. And they seek pardon and forgiveness of God. Why do they want to be pardoned by God? Why do they want God to forgive them? Where is that coming from? Also the godly soul. And they just don't want, they don't just feel that. Indeed, God will forgive him if he has repented with the appropriate penitence according to the counsel of our sage of blessed memory, namely the threefold division of atonement that is expounded in Rabbi Shmuel as explained elsewhere. Okay, so this is a person, they sin once in a while. What happens right after they sin? They feel remorse. They want to seek forgiveness. And they actually repent. They actually do tshuva. And God forgives them. Right? Mm-hmm. And yet they're still called? Russia. Why? Because it leaves an impact on their soul? No. No. Because it hasn't changed profoundly? Like they're still capable of making that sin again? That's yes. right. It could still happen again. It could still happen again. The, un- the same way before they sinned, the sin was a, was, a, was, 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 was a realistic possibility. When they've done shuva, they've just returned to the state they were before the sin. But the way they were before the sin, sin was still an option on the table. But if you're really doing shuva, isn't it like also you have to make a full change and a full Okay, so that's what we're going to talk about. That, that's what I want to talk about. I want to now turn the discussion to shuva and talk about a shuva which leaves the person in the state of Russia versus, versus a shuva which removes the person from a state of being a Russia. Okay. So we need to first start is like this. What is tshuva? What is tshuva? Coming back. Okay, but that's very abstract. It's like we're coming back. It means like I, my soul leaves the body and I go back to heaven. Like what, what is tshuva? Correction. 
Nope. It's returning to the way that you're originally supposed to be. Good. And what's the way you're originally supposed to be? Not tempted to do that same thing. No, 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 no. Take away the word tempted. Not. Not doing the thing. That's right. So tshuva is the resolve not to sin. It's very simple. In order to do tshuva, you have to do the following. You have to resolve sincerely and honestly not to sin again. If you've done that, you've done tshuva. How often do you do tshuva? What? No. Every day. All the time. But don't you have to actually not do this? Well, so, if you, have you ever made the decision, I'm not, I'm not going to do that again. You ever made that, 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 that thought cross your mind and you meant it, yeah? And um, the moment right afterwards, would you have sinned? Would you have done? No. So you did tshuva. How long did it last? A moment. A moment. But that, doesn't no, that... It has to be lasting. No, no it does the, not have to be lasting. Do you enter the qualifier that like, what if you're like, I'm never going to do that again, and then you just don't have the opportunity to do it again for like another six months? Because this is very important. The, the, the essence of tshuva is the resolve not to do it. If the resolve is there, let me put it this way. Let's talk about the absence of tshufa, and that's a little bit easier. Sometimes easier to think in terms of the negation. What would not be tshufa? What would not be tshufa is, I really wish I would never do it again, but I know I'm going to do it again anyway. You ever have those thoughts? Mm-hmm. Okay, right? There's, a, there's a, a sense of like tragic destiny that I'm doomed to sin, right? I wish I wouldn't, but I'm gonna. But then there's something else, like look, I'm not gonna do it anymore. Now, I might have the self-awareness to know that I have a problem, I don't know how I'm gonna maintain this. This sense, this resolve, I, I, I know it's gonna burn out within an hour, a day, or a week, and I don't know what to do then. But that doesn't detract from it being chuva. It's chuva, it's just a very small chuva. If you think of chuva like a fire, what is a fire? Is it, is it bonfire fire? Mm-hmm. What about a candle, yeah. flame? That's also fire. What about a little spark? It's also fire, right? Now, they're all the same thing, right? Now, if you have a little spark and you don't have anything to catch it, what's going to happen to the spark? It'll go out. It'll go out. But until it goes out, is it fire? On Shabbos, you're not allowed to make a fire, right? If you make a spark, are you guilty of violating the prohibition of creating a fire? Mm-hmm. Yes. Even though it's going to go out very quickly. Why? Because you have fire. If a person has, makes a resolve, they say, I am not going to sin again, and they mean it. And it wears off after two minutes, did they do tshuva? They did tshuva. The tshuva didn't last. Hey, this is very important. On the other hand, when they say, I wish I would never do it again, but they've kind of given up on that fact and they know that they're going to just do it again and there's no, there's no sense of determination, no sense of resolve. That's not tshuva. Hey. So we do tshuva all the time. Decent people do tshuva all the time. That's like, you know, the smoking thing, right? Exactly. Smoking is, quitting smoking is easy. My brother's done it tons of times. <laughs> it's just like that, right? Because what does it mean to quit smoking? Quit smoking is very easy. What does it mean? It means you make the decision not to smoke and then you don't smoke. Now, maybe you don't smoke for a day, okay? So you quit smoking for a day, right? For an hour, right? But the thing is, it only counts if you actually resolve it and that resolve has consequence. It actually carries through. The, 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 the duration of that is already a measurement of that, is a quality of that, right? Like the fire. How hot is the fire? How big is the fire? But that's separate from whether or not it is fire. A spark is fire. A flame is fire. A bonfire is fire, right? 
Just some of those are bigger and some of those are smaller. Some of those last longer, some of those last shorter. Some of those are hotter, some of those are not as hot. But they're all fire. Everybody goes on a diet when they go to sleep every night. No, <laughs> that, no, that's not, everyone goes on a diet when they go to sleep every night. They're just not eating. Unless... A diet is a willful regulation of what you're eating. Right? Make sense? Yeah. Okay. You got you. Okay. Now, when you do tshuva, what is the proper way to do tshuva? So that's tshuva. Now, the proper way to do tshuva. So there's tshuva, and then there's the appropriate tshuva. Tshuva nechayna, as it says, right, in Hebrew. What is the appropriate, proper way to do tshuva? Anyone know? Confession, right? Part of doing tshuva properly is confession. Now, tshuva is the tshuva even if you don't confess. But confession, okay? Um, you know, have you ever prayed the Shemonestri prayer? You notice there's confession built into there? Yeah. Um, what else is requesting forgiveness? Actually requesting forgiveness is part of the appropriate way of doing tshuva. Notice the rabbis built that in too? Now, why did they build in a, a request for forgiveness and an acknowledgement of sin, right? Right? I have sinned, please forgive me. Right? Why is that in the Shemonestra? Well, what's the assumption about the average Jew? Because you're consistently, every day, coming back to you. You've sinned, <laughs> you do some tshuva, and now again. you're... You know, Real so sorry. It's built in there, okay, right? <laughs> okay, so you're asking forgiveness of Hashem? Yeah, that's right, right. Now, I'm going to set aside sins that involve other people because that adds a layer of complication, okay? We're going to ignore that for the purposes of this class. So... Doing tshuva would mean A, the resolve not to sin. And that's it. That's all it means. That, if you've done that, you've tshuva. Now, it has to be an actual resolve, not just a desire. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows the difference between a desire and a resolve. A desire doesn't necessarily translate into any change in real life. A resolve does. Now, how long-lasting is that resolve? That's a separate issue. To do tshuva properly, that resolve needs to be accompanied with a verbal acknowledgement of wrongdoing, confession. It also needs to accompany a request, supplication, for God's forgiveness. Okay? Which then leads us to this notion of atonement. What is atonement? Making it right somehow. No. Well, sort of. Okay. So, to, to, to make this clear, I want, I want to differentiate between two things. There is punishment and there is atonement. And this is the rule of thumb. If you are being punished, it's not atonement. And if it's atonement, God is not going to punish you. Got it? If, you're, if it's punishment, then God is not going to grant you atonement. If you're, being, if you're getting atonement, you're not going to be punished. One or the other, not both. Why? Because atonement is, is something that comes from you. No. No. Atonement is something that comes from God, just like punishment. Atonement is God accepting your tshuva. God accepts your tshuva. Remember what happens when you sin, what has happened to your soul? It has become contaminated, it has become defiled. What is atonement? The rectification of that, the cleansing of that. The Hebrew word for atonement, kapara, carries the connotation, many kinds of, one of the connotations it carries is a notion of cleansing. 
Well, why would God cleanse away the defilement of your soul? Because he's angry with you or because he's not angry with you? He's not angry. He's not angry. He's forgiven you. And because he's forgiven you, he is using his divine ability to, to cleanse. To cleanse. Now, does that necessarily mean that it's a pain-free process? No. No. Right? But what? That's not, no, no, no. Punishment is when Hashem does... Punishment is when Hashem causes you pain. Why? No. Because you haven't done shuva, And therefore you deserve to suffer because you have rebelled against God. And you are a sinner. You are a wicked person who deserves horrible things to happen to them. So atonement is where there is no remaining... No remaining anything. No remaining what? Like, like, like... Uh, I think we used the analogy of like uh, a wound. Yes. Like there's not even like any. So there's there's so so there's two levels of atonement. One level of atonement is undoing the damage of the sin per se, and then there is something else, which is another kind of atonement. So I'll I'll explain. Very very briefly, there is a there is a teaching from Rabbi Shmuel, which is mentioned here. Rabbi Shmuel says that there are there are three kinds of atonement and a tshuva that accompanies each one. And I will go through them. Someone who has neglected a positive mitzvah does tshuva and they don't move from that moment until God has forgiven them. In other words, if you have neglected to do something, let's use an example. Um, let us say that you did not light Shabbos candles for whatever reason, but willingly, not I couldn't, not I didn't know, like really, willingly, you didn't light Shabbos candles. Like, you blew off the mitzvah, right? The moment you, you decide, I'm never doing that again. That was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. I should not have done that. that will, I will, and you sincerely, at that moment, now, what will happen next week? We don't know what will happen next week. Between now and next week is a long time. But at that moment, you were sincere. At that moment, you really meant it. Had that moment been the moment of lighting Shabbos candles, you would have lit the Shabbos candles? Then at that moment, God says, no hard feelings, let's move on. Mm. Done. Good? If a person has transgressed a negative sin, so they ate non-kosher food, and they do tshuva, they need to wait until Yom Kippur, and on Yom Kippur, God cleanses away the sin. Because one of the differences between negative sins and positive, negative mitzvahs and positive is that negative mitzvahs actually leave a lasting, um, a, a lasting um, contamination in the, in the soul beyond the moment of the sin. That has nothing to do with the act of rebelling against God, the act of rejecting God. It has to do with the nature of the sin itself. So what that means is that whereas where the person hasn't done the positive mitzvah, it's the absence of the mitzvah, here there's actually the presence of some kind of lingering sitrach, lingering klipa that needs to be cleansed out of the person, and that happens on Yom Kippur. What if a person has transgressed a capital crime meaning one that carries with it the death penalty or the soul getting cut off and does tshuva. Well, now the, the level of contamination of the soul is much more severe and Yom Kippur is not sufficient. The cleansing of that also doesn't, it needs to go through Yom Kippur plus a certain degree of suffering. Mm. Now, the suffering is not meant to punish. The suffering is meant to cleanse. Now, there's an interesting question. Why, how does suffering cleanse? Right? That's an interesting question. I don't want to go into that. It's not the topic. But that kind of suffering, which is meant to cleanse you, will only occur to a person who's already done 
Tshuva. In fact, when there was a court, and the court administered a court punishment that was the, one of the biblical punishments, if the person had done tshuva, and then submitted to the punishment of the court, that cleansed their soul. So that means, let's say, for instance, a person um, committed murder, and they're tried by the Basin, and they are found guilty, and before they're executed, they do tshuva, and they willingly accept it, they don't need their soul cleansed after their death. That punishment does the cleansing, provided that what? Then that punishment is no longer viewed, no longer is going to act as a punishment, that punishment is no longer a punishment, it's an act of cleansing, provided they did tshuva. Because the cleansing of atonement is a God's reciprocation, God's response to, to tshuva. We resolve not to sin, we ask forgiveness, he forgives us, and if we need cleansing, he then comes and cleanses us. Certain things, the cleansing involves a certain degree of suffering. The last category, remember I said there's how many? Three. The last category are sins involving the public desecration of God's name. So this is four categories? For that, Yom Kippur is not enough. Suffering is not enough. The soul is only cleansed through death. What is desecrating Hashem's name? Let's say... Rabbi who is found guilty of molesting children and that becomes publicly known. So it's not just the crime of molesting children, it is now how that makes Judaism, Orthodox Judaism, rabbis and what they represent look, right? Um, a religious Jew who um, cheats the government. Yeah? Um, and that gets on the news. Right? Okay. In other words, something where the sin is now not just reflection of them, but is now seen as a reflection of, of Hashem, of Judaism. Okay? At that point, the sin goes beyond what can be atoned while the soul is still in the body, and the full cleansing of the soul involves the removal of the person from this world. Wow. Which is why the altar, which is why Rabbi Shmuel doesn't count it as three. When he mentions three, he's talking about three that, while you're still alive. So there are three types of atonement that a person can undergo while staying alive. Because the fourth category involves dying. Okay, but here's the thing. These are all for the purpose of cleansing the person because God has forgiven them. Mm -hmm. And God has forgiven them because they've sincerely resolved not to sin again, right? What if a person says, I sinned, and I'm going to sin again, and God will just have to deal with it. That's his problem. So God's like, really? You want to start up with me? We'll see how that goes. Bam! 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 That's called punishment, okay? It's a different category altogether. And when does punishment stop? When he does tshuva. When he does tshuva. Punishment is for being in a state of rebellion against God. When you've done tshuva, you're not in a state of rebellion against God. Does that distinction make sense or should I elaborate on it? Okay. Punishment is God's response to your being rebellious, to your rejection of God. Well, tshuva is going away from that. Tshuva is what? Tshuva is, re- is resolving not to sin anymore. So until you, until you resolve to sin, Hashem is going to be hitting you. I mean, it's up to him whether he punishes you because he might have his own calculations, but in principle, the person is deserving of it. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, sins that you, like, which, 
Yes. Isn't that also that you only get atonement through death? No, through suffering. But if it's a capital crime. That means the base then has the ability under certain cases to execute you. Okay. Um, but it, 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 no, it doesn't have to be through death. And things. They're the Basin's power to, to cleanse your soul. So Shabbos violation, the Basin can only cleanse the person's soul through killing them. Through That's executing an intentional them. Shabbos violation. Uh, they, they, and, and they're very limited. They can only do that in very specific cases where the sin was intentional, they have evidence that it was intentional by being for person was being mm-hmm. forewarned, etc., etc., etc. Then God gives the court the power to cleanse the person's soul in those very clear cases. And depending on what the sin is, maybe the court's power is to death. But in, but in essence, it doesn't necessarily involve death. And the proof being is that a person who sinned, um, a person who sinned, um, an intentional Shabbos violation and the court is not involved, they do tshuva, their soul can be cleansed without dying. The only thing that necess- necessarily involves death in order to cleanse the soul is a public desecration of God's name. What about sins where your soul is cut off? Sins your soul cut off go in the same category as capital sins. So what... They don't. They involve suffering to cleanse the soul. They don't involve death. Okay. Now I want to make an important caveat. It's not important for our purposes. We're all familiar with the fact that God runs the world in a natural way. There is a system. There is a pattern to how things work, right? Okay. And yet God also does miracles, right? So normally water doesn't turn to blood and the sea doesn't split, right? Are you allowed to rely on a miracle? Are you allowed to ask for a miracle? Yes. So the same thing is true in spiritual matters. There is a natural order of how things work spiritually. The natural order is that if a person has sinned with a negative commandment, mm. the only way to cleanse the soul is to done shuva, and then God will cleanse the monyam kippur. And if it's a sin involving the soul getting cut off or capital sins, right, Shabbos violations or, 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 or things like that, then the only way for the soul to be cleansed is if the person's done shuva. So God has forgiven them, going through Yom Kippur, and then a certain amount of suffering, right? And if it's a public desecration of God's name, then even that's not good enough for the person actually needs to undergo death. That's the natural order of things. Could God cleanse your soul in a miraculous way that doesn't involve those things? Sure. Can you ask for that? Sure. In fact, some of our prayers ask for God to grant us atonement without suffering. Yes, really the natural order is I should suffer, but I can ask for a miracle. You're allowed to ask for a miracle. You're just not allowed to. Rely on one, okay? So that's an important thing, and Hasidus discusses why is it that sometimes grants this kind of cleansing in a miraculous way and why there's a natural way, and that's not the purpose of our discussion. What I want you to have clear is that even something which is painful and suffering is not, should not be viewed as punishment. It should be viewed as the culmination of Hashem's act of forgiveness. Mm. That even something which is painful and suffering should not necessarily be viewed as punishment, but in fact viewed as the culmination of Hashem's forgiveness. It's punishment when the person stays in that rebellious mode. They're still holding on to a sinful approach. They're still willing to sin. They're still intending to sin. They're not contrite about the sin. That person deserves punishment. Mm -hmm. So punishment is for a person who has not done shuva, atonement for a person who has done shuva and that shuva has been accepted. Hashem has forgiven them. And as part of that forgiveness, he wants to cleanse them of the negative effects from the sin. So if you're being punished, you're not getting atonement. If you're getting atonement, you're not being punishment. There's no punishment. There are two opposite sides of having done shuva. Shuva, though, is entirely up to the person. Shuva is that resolve not to sin. And to do it properly, it has to be accompanied with an acknowledgement of what the wrongdoing and a request for forgiveness and atonement. Those are just the three steps? I felt like there were more. 
Wait, the third type, when somebody does a capital sin, it also involves some kind of punishment, right? No, it's not punishment. Oh, it's suffering. It's suffering. Okay. Right. Remember, punishment, in other words, the fact that something hurts, right, just think of that, is cutting someone's body open with a knife a crime? Depends, right? Like, that, that doesn't give me enough information. The fact that God does something to me which hurts, maybe that's suffering because God is trying to punish me. Maybe that's suffering that's bringing in atonement. Maybe it's God creating a challenge for growth, which is a third category of painful experiences, right? You know, it's simply the fact that God caused a person to undergo a painful experience does not necessarily tell you what is the essence of God's act there. What is he trying to do? And what's motivating it? But you cannot be punished for your sins if God has forgiven you. And you can't get atonement unless God has forgiven you. And God's forgiveness is a response to your resolve not to sin anymore. So tshuva on our part elicits forgiveness on God's part. And when necessary, that forgiveness motivates the atonement, the cleansing, the kapara, which may or may not involve suffering. Punishment is God's response to the rebelliousness, the lack of tshuva. Okay, so this person has done tshuva. They resolved not to sin. They felt bad. And they didn't just feel bad. They felt bad and they resolved not to sin and they meant it. And they, they implemented that in their life. How long it lasts is a separate point. And Hashem has forgiven them. And Hashem will cleanse away the negative effects of the sin. Through Yom Kippur, maybe miraculous, whatever. Yeah, okay. What's the difference between, one more time, why Hashem brings punishment? One is to... The punishment? Sorry, suffering. Suffering, I gave you three reasons. Punishment and cleansing. Punishment, cleansing, it also could be a, 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 a test. Right, but what's the punishment and cleansing? Punishment or cleansing or a right, test. Right, what's the, what's the difference? Punishment is God is angry with you and wants you to hurt because you deserve it. Hashem does that? Yes. He does. <laughs> How are you supposed to know like, when something terrible happens to you? How are you supposed to know? I mean, I guess, I guess you know what you've done in your life. But... It doesn't really matter. In a certain level. Mm. Uh, now, Hasidus points out something deeper, which, to be fair, is that even when Hashem is angry at you, that anger is only superficial. Like Hashem could be punishing you, but you're not being cleansed at the same time. He could just be getting his anger out at you. Or the punishment is to make you realize how wrong you are, so that you'll do tshuva, so that he'll forgive you, so that you'll be cleansed, because deep down God loves you. So that, uh... Like sometimes parents... <laughs> Sometimes parents get really angry with their children, right? And that anger is motivated because they really care about their children. And they're so upset that their children are doing something wrong, right? And it's not necessarily a calculated, thought-out thing to educate the child. It's an expression of, I really love my child. My child is doing something horribly wrong. And I just, I, I, I feel really upset about that. And I want them to know how upset I am about that. And so I will, like, make them suffer so they know how upset I am about that. But people do that, right? God also does that. What? Why isn't suffering always cleansing? Why isn't suffering always cleansing? Because it's not a magic trick. It's not, like, it's not like X amount of pain equals X amount of cleansing. Um, in fact, it, it actually says something very interesting is that if the suffering is self-induced, it can never be cleansing. Mm. So for instance, if you deprive yourself of things in order to atoned by self-induced suffering, it doesn't work. It has to be suffering. That, one, of the, one of the criteria for suffering to cleanse, it has to be brought about by God. Wow. I thought 
Fasting has very profound effects, but it doesn't do this. Fasting, oh. fasting is a form of prayer. So if you would like to intensify your prayer to request cleansing, fasting might be appropriate. Or, and there's another idea, which is if you would like not just God to cleanse the, the, the stain of sin, but you want God to be pleased with you. So you want to give God, um, just like a sacrifice can be, can, a sacrifice can be brought as a gift to find favor in God's eyes. So fasting can be at, done as an act to find favor in God's eyes. So certain mystics, even for the most minor transgressions, would fast for an, an, an extreme amount of fasts, not in order to cleanse the stain of sin, but to elicit God to shine his favor upon them um, after having been forgiven and cleansed. So while we do find fasting in association, fasting is not actually part of tshuva and it's not actually part of atonement. Wait a second, but we, when we say tshuva, tefillah, and stalka, like, those remove center, what? It says tshuva is fasting, tefillah is prayer, and stalka is charity. It says right above there's little things, yes, I know. Yeah. But if you, it's just a good question. I don't know the answer because if you look in, if you look in all the laws of tshuva, fasting is not mentioned. Is it just like, so that's why? just the reference? Fasting is always mentioned in the context of prayer or there's a mitzvah on Yom Kippur to fast, which is independent. But fasting is always, every time fasting is mentioned in the Tanakh and every time fasting is mentioned in halachic works, it is always in the context of prayer and sacrifice, never in the context of tshuva. So why is it saying this? I don't know. You can ask me again. I'll tell you I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure there's a reason. I just don't know. It, right? it happens. I don't know things. Can I just raise a question? Yeah. So, like, I thought that was really interesting. Suffering isn't always cleansing. If the suffering self-induced, it cannot be cleansing. Because I think about, like, how many times we feel guilty about something and subconsciously we're, like, putting ourselves through something really, like, negative. Even if it's just, like, you don't even know what you're doing until you think about it. But you're doing this, like, right. something subconscious to, like, really get at yourself, like, through not allowing yourself some sort of good thing because deep down right. inside you feel guilty about something you did. That's that kind of cleanse you. So part of it, part of it, now, I, I haven't seen this explicitly. This is my opinion, okay? I generally don't tell you my own opinion about things because I, I read things, I understand this. I think, as far as I understand this, what it means. This, I haven't seen it anywhere, it makes sense to me. Part of what makes suffering cleansing is the embracing of the vulnerability before God. So self-induced suffering is antithetical to cleansing because you're not, you're not willing to relinquish control over your life it's like, I feel bad and I'm going to like, you know, it's kind of like what you mentioned previously about like addictive behavior. I have my problem. I'm going to deal with it on my terms. Part of what makes suffering cleansing is the willingness to allow God to, to do to you as he sees fit without that detracting from your enthusiasm and your zest for serving God, right? There's a, a, a vulnerability um, and a connectivity that go along with this, to my knowledge. Mm -hmm. That makes like, sense to me, based on things I've read. But I haven't seen that explicitly. Thank you. Um, so interesting, by the way, suffering comes in degrees. So for instance, an example, a classic example of suffering, which is if you've ever reached your hand in your pocket to pull out your, I don't know, your keys or your wallet or a coin, and it wasn't in the pocket, it was in the other pocket, and it's annoying, and so you have to reach into the other pocket to get it. Mm -hmm. So God does that to you sometimes, just as a means of cleansing. Mm -hmm. Have you ever like just missed the bus? It's also a form of suffering, right? But no one says the suffering has to be extreme, right? Sometimes it's extreme suffering, sometimes it's minor suffering. So the, the element is not, right, the, 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 the idea, right? no, so there is an idea of fasting, but the idea of fasting is in the context of 
heightening the role of prayer and sacrificial worship. Um, with the exception of Yom Kippur, where fasting is a mitzvah in its own right. So when the rabbis institute fast, the idea of fast is that we want to heighten our prayers to God. Maybe there's an evil decree and we want to remove the decree when we're praying to God and we want to enhance the prayers, right? So the classic example of fasting in the Talmud is when there's a drought. And to, God, to, to, to supplicate God to, to rescind the decree of drought, we pray. And if the drought isn't rescinded, then they declare fasts, public fast days. So that's, that's in the realm of prayer. It's not in the realm of tshuva, and it's not in the realm of... Now, you can pray to God for the, the motivation, the drive, the inspiration to do tshuva in a deeper way. You might pray to God to grant you atonement quicker, right? So there, it has an interaction, but fasting will not achieve cleansing. It's not like, oh, I've sinned. If I fast, I'll cleanse the sin out of me. It's not going to work. Okay. So why are we fasting in some way drops? So there's an idea that when something happens to a person, maybe an indication that they need to repent. And again, there's a notion of fasting as part of prayer and praying for greater awareness and greater insight to help with the process of tshuva. So a fast day is a day of repentance, but not because of the fasting per se, but because of the association of prayer, that you pray for insight, you pray for guidance, you pray for that kind of stuff, right? So it's in, in that context. It's not, you know, if a person, if a safer Torah falls or a tefillin falls on the floor, that's an indication from God that things are not as they should be. So and they something need, holy falls specifically. Yeah, yeah. And, and that means that there's a, either a responsibility to return to God. And in that context, prayer is very powerful. And fasting is a method of enhancing prayer. A fasting can also going to be a method of sacrifice. But, but the act of depriving yourself is not going to create the cleansing of the soul. Because fasting is a mitzvah on Yom Kippur. You know, you know, God commanded 613 mitzvahs. Two of them are fasting. So somebody who's fasting is, is okay, he's done the mitzvah of a fasting. Yeah. But it's not necessarily... Done shuva. Okay. Yeah, two different things. Two different things. 100%. So, okay, but if somebody's not fasting, that goes does he get to If he's not fasting... And goes to shul and... Well, if the not fasting... Or, uh, uh, a sinful not fasting. He's not fasting because halakhli is not allowed to fast or he's not fasting because he is unaware that he needs to fast. Let's say he's like just not fasting either because he's just breaking it or he's... Well, then he's away. sinning. And if you're sinning, then you're not doing tshuva by definition. Right? Mm -hmm. you, there are two ways in which a person could not be fasting on Yom Kippur and still be, and still be doing tshuva. One is they're halakhli not allowed to fast and the other is not aware that they need to fast. They're not aware. Then it's not a sin. Something you are not aware of, legitimately unaware of. You can't legit, for instance, you can't say, well, I didn't know I'm not allowed to steal and murder. No, that, that, that's not right. But you could say, I didn't know that I need to fast on Yom Kippur. What if you don't know what fast is? Because some people just think it's not easy. Yeah, that's the same thing. He doesn't know. Now, again, is the not knowing be a legitimate not knowing? So, for instance, if a person grows up in an ultra Orthodox community, and they're 35, and they're drinking on Yom Kippur. Like, clearly, like, that, that's not, that there's, that there's some negligence on their part, right? That, now, on the other hand, if a person is, 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 is about tshuva, 
Or they grew up in a very modern community where not everybody's the same standards of religiosity and a lot of what we think we need to do, we look for other people. And so a lot of people are, are not keeping full fast. It's quite plausible through no part of negligence on their own. They really legitimately believe that fasting is enough to abstain from not eating, right? So yeah, that, 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 that distinction would have to be made. Right? Um, you know, the, the, the guy who grows up, reform, and drives to the temple, right? And really wants to return to God on Yom Kippur. He drives on Yom Kippur, right? And uh, he puts out a cigarette does not to desecrate the sanctuary, right? All in good faith. He really doesn't know any better, right? Like, that's not sin. The act is a sinful act, but he is not a sinner. You know, he's not sinning. There's no, there's no deserving of punishment. There's like, that, that's irrelevant, right? But if a person either knows or can be held responsible for knowing, so their lack of knowledge can be a form of negligence. Like it says, when a scholar doesn't know the halacha, that itself is a sin because he should have been more conscientious in his studies. Um, then, then yeah, you, know, you can't say I'm doing tshuva while I'm sinning. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. What if a person grows up, no, you know, no observance and wasn't exposed to it, and they know, like, it said that you're supposed to fast on him before, like, they know that I knew <laughs> that, but um, don't believe it, don't believe in the whole thing, where would that fall? Like, so you answered your own question because you said it said. It says. Let me, let me tell you a story. I'm going to tell you a story. There was once a great rabbi named Rabbi Kiva Eger. Rabbi Kiva Eger was not a Hasidic Jew. He was not opposed to Hasidim. He was neutral. He had a son named Shlomo Eger. Shlomo Eger was a vehement opponent of the Hasidic movement. He had a son named Label Eger. So this is Rabbi Kiva Eger's grandson. Label Eger went off to go study in some town. And um, his father told him, do not associate with the Hasidim. They're a bunch of heretics. They're totally warped Judaism. Just... Focus on your Talmudic studies. Don't don't interact with them at all. Now, Label Eger was a very deep person, a very scholarly person. The Hasidim were very interested in um, getting him onto their side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the particular group of Hasidim that were in that area were known as the Kutz Hasidim, were known for their um, extremism, to put it mildly. So Yom Kippur by night, he's sitting after the prayers are finished, he's sitting studying in, in, in the shul. And the Kutz Hasidim come in with a bottle of vodka and some cups, singing and dancing. And they pour a cup and they give it to, to, to put in front of label. And they say, label, it's a holiday, it's a yomtif. Hashem has forgiven us, say l'chaim. Rejoice, celebrate. He ignores them. And they keep bothering him, they keep bothering him. They say, say l'chaim, say l'chaim. And eventually he loses his patience. He says, it's forbidden. It says the code of Jewish law, no drinking. And so the cups are Simpson. Says a lot of things in a lot of places. Like, what does that have to do? Today's a holiday, it's a yomtif. Rejoice, Sel Chaim. Oh, you can't prevent night. Sel Chaim. So he says, well, it's not just like some like extra stringency. It's a it's a, one of the basic teachings in the Mishnah. There are five things that are forbidden to do on Yom Kippur, and one of them is eating and drinking. They say, Mishnah, we also learn Mishnah. Living Mishnah is very important. What does that have to do with what we're doing now? We're celebrating Mishnah's forgiveness. Sel <laughs> Chaim. It's a verse in scripture. It's in the, it's in the Chumash. You say, look, we also went to school in Cheder. We also had to read Chumash. It's very nice. What does that have to do with it? Say L'chaim. And he's like, he doesn't like, you know, this is, you know, back in the shtetl, right? Like, who's ever heard of drinking Yom Kippur? And he's like, God doesn't let. And they said, oh, why didn't you just say that? They pour the mashka back and walk out. He spends the whole night in contemplation. And he realizes, just because it says doesn't mean I have to do it. So if a person's sense of Judaism growing up is it says, why should I do what it says? But if their sense of growing up is 
someone said, and I have a sense of that someone really said it, then that's different. The most important part of Jewish education for a child is not that the child knows what it says, the child knows who said it. That's the answer. Anyway, he became a chassid, and eventually when his rebbe died, he became a rebbe. Um, his father was not very happy. There's other stories involved in that, but we'll end here. Okay, so tomorrow we're going to have questions and answers, um, and then next week, God willing, we're going to talk about what's lacking in his tshuva, which we didn't get to, in this person's tshuva, that keeps him a rasha even after the tshuva. Get a more into it. I mean, we spoke about it very briefly, that the sin is still feasible. I want to understand like, what's lacking in the actual tshuva process. Even though it's a proper tshuva, and Hashem has forgiven him, he gets atonement, what's missing? Things about sin that—that's like one of the six thirteen that we're not allowed to do, or is that something that like the Alter Rebbe brings in? Like, is there so a- so th- there's a- any sin that you're not allowed to do, you're not allowed to contemplate doing. That's right. part of the. First. That's part of the six thirteen. That, that so are you allowed to are you allowed to light are you allowed to are you allowed to light a fire on Shabbos? No. Are you allowed to sit there thinking should I shouldn't I light the fire? Really want to light the fire? Say no, but that's part of the first. Part of it? It's prohibited. Yes. Okay. In addition to that, there are certain things that even not thinking about doing them, they're forbidden, which are thoughts of heresy, carnal thoughts, um, jealousy, anger. These types of things are also forbidden. So it's really considered part of like... It's not yes, like an, right. There's a verse. There's a, there's a verse. There's a verse that says, Say nishma every day, right? Don't turn, after your, don't turn astray after your heart. That's talking about forbidden thoughts. Heresy and carnal thoughts. All right. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, yes, I'll be here.